0: Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics, and I know you do too, so I'm going to give you a little gift, and that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be pod sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism is a production of La Luz de Azus Gallery and Meltdown Comics. And today we have a very special guest, um, one of my great mentors and my current employer, actually, uh, Mr. Billy Shire. You just call me boss. <laughs> I'll call you chief. Yeah, no, that's, that's Jamie. <laughs> for the uneducated, uh, or I should say for the people who don't know any better, um, Billy Shire is the owner of La Luz de Jesus Gallery and also So Plant and Wacko. And... Um, most importantly, if you go through the history of the, the California art scene, specifically Los Angeles, um, he's been called the Peggy Guggenheim of lowbrow. Uh, most people credit Billy as being the guy who really first started showcasing in a major way as part of a program the um, the artists that became the pop surrealists. And we can go down a laundry list of people who, um, who started at the gallery and people who had early shows. But I think that's probably going to emerge as we have a deeper conversation. So um, – I guess for people who don't know, um, you set up the shop, um, or your mom had the shop in 1971, um, just not too far from where we are now on Hollywood Boulevard over on Sunset.
1: Yes. On Sunset Boulevard in 1971, we, my mother and I uh, started a soap store and, uh, there was a sideline of leatherwork in the back and that was me. Mm-hmm. And from there it just, uh, uh organically grew into what it is now
0: now what was the area or of that it, first shop
1: or maybe in it organically <laughs> uh that was uh in the sunset junction area of uh, silver lake um
0: and the square footage
1: uh the original square footage was oh, 600 square feet
0: wow and that's everything that's all-inclusive
1: uh, that doesn't include the bathroom.
0: Okay. Okay. As long as they didn't include the bathroom, but the um, so your your mom had uh, cousins who were making essential oils up in San Francisco. Uh yes, my aunts.
1: Uh, well, they were working with a, a lab in, in Berkeley, and they opened a store called the Body Shop in uh, nineteen seventy.
0: Mm-hmm. Not, not the Body Shop that people see in the malls.
1: No. But no. that one was actually based on the original body shop. It's now called the Body Shop of Berkeley. Right. Um, and uh, uh, it was it was a little more um, hippie, environmentally uh, green-minded based. type of thing. Yes, it was. It was basically the idea was you brought your bottle back, and all the ingredients were as close to natural as Possible biodegradable uh, yada yada yada,
0: and that's pretty much still true. I mean, there's there's a few more scents in the line than were originally there that aren't necessarily all natural, but we still certainly have people who are bringing back their bottles still to refill things.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's the same thing. We still we still do it. We have customers that have been coming back for forty five years yeah, refilling their bottles. And they're about the only ones that refill their bottles.
0: <laughs> yeah, people who did it originally. So your your mom um, had had these relatives, and your dad, Hank, had been a journeyman carpenter. A master carpenter. And, and your brothers...
1: He, he had an art background. He, he became a carpenter out of necessity, but he had a, a degree in pictorial illustration from Pratt Institute. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, he was uh, an amazing draftsman, an artist.
0: Yeah, I've seen some of the architectural renderings; and they're amazing. And of course, the original So Plant sign, your your dad designed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Peter Shire is your brother. Peter Shire is museum exhibited artist, part of the the only American member of the Memphis Group, um, whose work is kind of almost, um, indeniably connected to the look that people think of from the 1980s that sprung forward with super colors and the kind of Mondrian patterns and things like that. And so he was maybe doing the teapots at that point from the shop.
1: We had ceramics, you know, we were triple
0: threat. We had ceramics, Mm -hmm. leather, and soap. And, and you said leather, but you kind of like, we're going to elaborate on that because you were, you were making belts and clothing for some some fairly famous people.
1: Uh yeah, well I was doing uh, costumery basically. It was all it was heavy metal before heavy metal it was all studs and mm-hmm. and rhinestones and uh, I was also doing tooling, but it was all it was mainly belts what I did. And then I uh, ended up working for a guy named Bill Witten, uh, rest his soul, who was uh, a pioneer in um, rock costumery because back in the 70s, rock bands would go out and they'd have a whole costumes and change and and uh, they'd spend 100, 200 thousand dollars on their wardrobe for. Mm-hmm for that um, which,
0: music industry budgets have not have, have changed quite a bit I guess Yeah,
1: and uh, well you know there's still a couple you know Beyonce, Beyonce and Madonna like yeah go out like that and, and spend even more and they you know the, the sets and things have, have gotten more elaborate on the top end mm-hmm. um and uh you know I made a, a number of things for uh you know, that went out in bands and and toured the country. I'd like to know where they are now.
0: So you, Elton John?
1: Yeah, well, Elton John, I did, uh, I did actually a, a really strange piece for uh, a tour where they had a blacklight, um, uh, what's the, the uh, it was a... Um,
0: like a strobe?
1: Uh, no, it was actually a spotlight. Mm-hmm. That they'd turn all the lights off, and I made this harness that went on his shoulders that had piano wire coming out with ping pong balls painted in day glow. So they'd turn the lights off, and all you'd see were these bouncing balls up on stage. Which, because uh, but it's wouldn't...
0: piano wire, it would it was not it wasn't stable. It would move, and you'd yeah. see that move as he played the piano. And that's the only thing you see, which must have been kind of incredible in 1970s audience. It'd be incredible now.
1: Yeah, um, let's do it again. I don't. I never saw it, so
0: <laughs> you never saw it in actual practice. No, I hated Elton John at that point. Did you do the the New York Dolls? I never
1: did anything. They. I think they did everything themselves.
0: Right, right. But there's a few others. There's some. There's some major acts in there.
1: Well, yeah. No, I didn't. I did. I did the Letterman and Three Dog Night. And, mm-hmm. You know, it was. Uh, you know, he was kind of throwing me a bone, and I. I was. Uh, I was not getting a major amount of money for for any of this stuff. I right. was I was pretty much working for three dollars an hour because yeah. they were all custom custom items, one of a kind that you can't get. You can't make money on right uh, on that uh, on that budget he was giving me.
0: Now you had done the Levi's jacket, and it was the contest, and you had kind of decked out a Levi's jean jacket. In what you do with the leather tooling and um, metal Well, work. It, was,
1: it was all it was all studs and, and rhinestones, and I uh, you know I found out about it by accident a week before the first deadline, and I worked like a hundred hours on it, took pictures and flew them up to San Francisco where the contest was headquartered, where Levi's is, mm-hmm. and uh, I made the second cut, and in between. The first and second cuts, I did several hundred more hours on it, and it's just literally covered with rhinestones.
0: That's of, a heavy jacket, yeah. And it's it's been exhibited in several museums. It's considered one of the uh, most important pieces of pop couture and has been included in the Tashion book on fashion and another book on fashion. Uh, yeah, Abbeyville. it was uh, an art, yep. art to wear. It's been in about f- four or five books and we just loaned it out to a museum in Seattle. They're borrowing it again for another show in New York. And there's another request for the museum in, in Virginia. Oh, no, in, uh,
1: I thought was in Philadelphia. Philadelphia.
0: Yeah. So the um, it's interesting that, you know, that, again, you'll be known for what you're known for originally before you even opened up the gallery and kind of started opening these types of doors for a lot of other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, known for something, I guess. <laughs> I had my 15 minutes.
0: <laughs> so the, in, the, in the mid-70s, as the, um, the shop moves a little bit further down the street, and then um, as we start getting towards the 80s, you opened up um, Wacko, which became the, the toy store, and most people are familiar with the sign. The signs were all very famous neon sign, and the original sign was horizontal, and then the second sign was uh, vertical, and now there's been a request from the Neon Museum to borrow the original horizontal sign, which puts another aspect of, of what this, the Shire Empire, if you will, the impact that it's had on Los Angeles and how Los Angeles being this big window to the world, um, that this impact goes global. So by the time you move from the eastern side of Hollywood, you know, Las Vegas, Silver Lake, to Melrose Melrose was at that point um, not very happening that was like what was down there was a couple used clothing stores maybe
1: Um, well it had started it uh, you know it basically started happening in uh, 77 78 uh, but it really never didn't take off till after I got there Um, but yeah there was uh, you know uh Golden Apple, mm-hmm. you know, still around. Uh, Poser
0: was open then, and no,
1: no, Poser does no. no. That was that was much later. Um, but, well, Pose, Poser was at a different place. But Aaron's was one that was there forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and um, what was the used clothes? Aardvark's store? was Aardvark's. there. artworks was there for a long time. Mostly, it was services and antique stores. It was it was like the best store for. Mid-century uh, American antiques in town.
0: Interesting, because that seems to have also moved out towards Echo Park, along not just Sunset, but even down Echo Park Avenue and uh, Alvarado.
1: Well, in La Brea, and it's uh, La Brea's expensive. <laughs> either that or Palm Springs.
0: Yeah. So the um in in the early '80s, and as that scene starts to build. So Plant and Wacko, um, side by side at that point, um, become almost the epicenter of Melrose Ave, like being at the corner of Melrose and Martell. It's really the exact middle between Fairfax and La Brea, which would be, I guess, the easy to travel 10 blocks or so that um, kids on the weekends would pile out of their parents' cars and, and go shopping. And... Eventually, L.A. works moves across the street. No,
1: L.A. works was one of the originals. Oh, so if wow. You, if you want to, I can go down the list. I can't remember half of it. But, um, yeah, L.A. works was there for a long time. Um, and um, in 82 or 83, Flip opened. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of what, what put Melrose on the map mm-hmm. uh, because they did these full-page ads in the L.A. Weekly every week. Yeah. And they really started bringing it. And also, right around that time, it started to become a restaurant street. It was the beginning of Los Angeles's gastronomic, gastronomic uh Awakening, boom. yeah. Yeah, it was the awakening, you know, with, with uh, uh, City Cafe and Tommy Tang's. And right. It, Tommy it, Tang's. And it really, really a cucina mm-hmm. there, you know, um, and what was the other Italian one down the street with the the weird metal front.
0: Don Corleone's? Uh, no, no. There it, was one that had that like a crazy godfather type name. Oh that's still still there, I think. There's the but, one that had like the, the there was a someone drilled a hole in the wall in the bathroom or something. But Angelie was there for a while, and Angelie was great. Yeah, yeah.
1: Angeli and and Evan Kleiman, of course, mm-hmm. is one of the deans of LA mm-hmm. uh, foodies. You know, she's got a big show on KCRW and yeah. stuff. So she's, and that was hers. Right. And and we went to kindergarten together.
0: <laughs> they had a good angel hair pasta with like a butter sauce, which was amazing when I could eat that stuff. And then further down the block, let like down the the street, as you started getting past La Brea into the um between La Brea and Highland neighborhood, Wolfgang Puck opened up LaRange in the um in the early nineties and that was like his signature restaurant before he opened up Wolfgang Puck's. But that was in between spago's. So that that strip continued even further down and of course now Massa is over in that area and it's mm. still kind of a foodie neighborhood, but in a it was a little bit of a gap.
1: Yeah. But you know, that was like in the eighties when Melrose was the center of L.A. Yeah, the, the cultural West Coast, universe. The cultural universe. Yeah. Basically, you know, it became, you know, a tourist mecca. It was everything, and and we were open late because of the restaurants. Yep.
0: And uh, ten to ten, right? 11, On Melrose, eleven to
1: ten. I, don't know. I <laughs> I'm not going to look back, but. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that we were really, uh, really churning it out then.
0: And the, even the newsstand, you know, that was, you know, the Davila's newsstand that, which was right there on the corner next to you as you headed south on Martel. And before you hit the stairs that would later, uh, lead up to the gallery, I mean, just the kids who worked that newsstand, it was like all the Arquette kids worked at that newsstand. So David Arquette, Richmond Arquette, uh, Alexis, I think worked there at a certain point. Um, Hartwell Davila's best friend, I think, was Stephen Dorff, who was always hanging out there. Balthazar Getty was always there. So it's kind of like this other weird center of young Hollywood. Like all these kids that were becoming famous as actors in the early 90s were kids that just hung out at that newsstand. And then even some of the artists who would show later at places like Blum & Poe or, um, or um, L.A. Louvre would be like um, Gajin Fujita was a kid who just hung out at that newsstand. And um, you know, reading comic books most of the time. So it's it's interesting how that like that corner like really changed the culture because of your shop. And it's hard to express in a podcast. And we'll we'll have links back on on the the blog that show you some of the pictures of the era. But the the building was was painted to um, try and do that then too. Brent? No, no, that
1: was Robert Newman.
0: Robert Newman painted the outside Robert of the building. Newman,
1: he was the original drummer for the motels, mm-hmm. so we had a lot of musicians around, too. Yeah. Um, but I did the, I did the design uh, for that.
0: And then had it executed yeah. large format.
1: And uh, uh, Shrine did the one that was on the alleyway going into wacko when wacko was in
0: the back moved a little bit further down the street and people who remember classic you know late 80s early early 90s melrose will remember this shot you'd see the wacko sign out on the street but you'd walk down this alleyway that was filled with funhouse mirrors and everybody take pictures in that and it was kind of a brilliant way of turning a warehouse space into a street front retail space yeah drag them back and then
1: and then shrines uh Mural of Godzilla, I forget what he was eating, mm-hmm. but uh, that was Shrine's first uh, mural. Wow. Uh, and, and the rest is history. Yeah. He so just did a, a another one for me four or five months ago on the side, which is just amazing.
0: Yeah, it, for, uh, people want locations of this one, you're talking about Hollywood and Rodney, so 4633 Hollywood Boulevard. You'll see the, the Wacko sign on the corner, and in an attempt really to fight, and he had done the, a, a smaller a smaller and different mural that stretched from about maybe 10 feet up um, Rodney and then all the way to the storefront, but because the neighborhood became kind of a, um, a graffiti neighborhood, the best way to combat that was to paint it all the way down to the end of the block and now no one would touch it because it's so beautiful. And it's certainly something that people take a lot of pictures in front of and we see him you know, retweeted, people ask the name and they look up, you know, sh- shrine on and tying together that history on Melrose with, uh, with the longer history at this point back out in Los Feliz. So we're going to take a little break really quickly before we start heading into what becomes the the modern history of Wacko and So Plant La Luz de Jesus um, just to hear a little word from our sponsors. But um, we'll be right back to talk more about kind of the history of Melrose and the cultural center of the universe that is Wacko with Billy Shire right after these words. <coughs> Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host Matt Kennedy, and I have with me today Billy Shire, who is the scion behind the Soap Plant Wacko Empire, La Luz de Jesus Press, and the Gallery, and a lot of other things that you probably don't know about. But we hope to get into before uh, before you sign off with us today. So welcome back, Billy.
1: Hi, but uh, I, I didn't a go <laughs> I mean, I... <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, this is this is one of the kind of great things though um, about you too is that you've had a tremendous impact on the pop culture of Los Angeles, but you, you live a, a, a fairly Spartan lifestyle. I mean, most of, you don't pay yourself a lot of money. You put most of the money that you make back into the business. It's um, It's got every item that's in the shop, and there are got to be a million skews at this point in, in, in the shop over the years, that there's just so many different types of little small things. All of these have been handpicked by you. I mean, it's a really incredibly large format, longly historic curated project. Uh,
1: I look at it as, um, as an art piece pretty yeah. much. It is always been about pop culture and uh, visual culture. I mean, everything, you know, it's like everybody does things with words on it. Now mm-hmm. we do a few things with words, but If it doesn't really have a picture on it, if it doesn't have graphics or something that's, uh, you know, painted or drawn, it doesn't belong in the store. Mm -hmm. But when we first started out, we were doing, we always did pop culture. We did Japanese and we did toys. We Mm -hmm. did die cast toys, but we did baskets from all over the world and masks and, you know, a lot of ethnographic uh, culture. We still do a little bit of that, but it's hard to mix it in with a, the more pop and uh, retro.
0: But certainly, culture. you know, Dia de los Muertos. Almost anybody who knows Dia de los Muertos outside of Oaxaca, um, if they've come through Los Angeles, they know it because of your shop and the huge amount of Dia de los Muertos figures that well, that it's, we it's, have.
1: It's become worldwide, and uh, you know, I don't know whether I should apologize for to blame Boingo, pretty much starting uh, uh, that. But it's yeah, it's uh, you know, it, actually that was that was the impetus for the starting of the gallery. That mm-hmm. was our first show, was the Day of the Dead show, October 19,
0: 1986. 1986. Yep.
1: The uh, poster actually says Soap Plant. That's before the gallery had a name, mm-hmm. and um, I just had. All this material, from my years of traveling in Mexico, I just started getting these bigger and bigger things, and commissioning the folk artists down in Mexico, and we ended up with stuff that I couldn't put in the store. So we did a show, yeah, which uh, lasted ten years annually.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the first group show was always the Day of the Dead show, and then there were other group shows. the The commercial, non-commercial art by commercial yeah, well, artists it, after yeah, that.
1: Yeah, it turned into. It had different names over the yeah. years, but it's basically the same show running for
0: 30 20 years. Yeah, 30 years.
1: I think yeah, it's now. 30 years. 30 years this October.
0: And the, the other thing, because of where you were located too, and I think because um, Melrose became this cultural hub and it did really become the cultural center of, of Los Angeles, as Los Angeles started to become almost introspective and nostalgic about itself. So by the late 80s and early 90s, a lot of television directors, uh, set decorators, and set designers were looking for things that, to them, represented specifically Los Angeles, and they knew that they could find those things at Soul Plant, at WACO, and at the gallery. And so I remember by the time I was working for you in 1991, I think it was, it was constantly rentals going out to TV shows, commercial rentals, and you'd start seeing the stuff that we'd see on the shelves, you know, Precariously placed in the background, so that you, you'd get a sense that this must be Los Angeles, and there were a lot of Los Angeles-based television shows at that time.
1: Yeah, well, that part of that is that Los Angeles and Southern California is, for a great extent, you know, uh, post-war, the center of culture, pop culture. I mean you look at surfing you look mm-hmm. at I mean tattooing you I just down the line hot rodding yeah motorcycle gangs it all came from California uh and uh that's what I did I was I was feeding it feeding it back to them and uh and they were uh, and, and then they were, of course they were shooting the front of the store yeah. as part of being part of LA yeah you know, uh, and not paying me enough. I think Dragnet uh, never paid me anything.
0: Oh, the Dragnet movie. Yeah. That's
1: right. And we were on the beginning of Arsenio Hall. Yeah. And the story with that one was, I saw Arsenio sitting on the bus bench in front of, in front of the store, going
0: right on Melrose. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Looking up at it, and a week later the show asked me to use it, and you know, I felt kind of honored because it was actually him. Right. Instead of, you know, a set guy, producer or whatever, you know, coming by, you know, and, uh, you know, because they they wanted, I think they put it on uh, Jay Leno too or something. I don't know if it was...
0: Because he was hosting for Jay Leno before he got his own show, yeah. Yeah,
1: or something, but I had to, I think I had to make him take it off or something because they didn't get a...
0: I remember when the Melrose Place thing happened, mm-hmm. and Melrose Place was was shopping for for um, marquee signs and stuff, and you turn them down. Yeah. <laughs> pay me,
1: pay me, sucker. <laughs>
0: I mean, it didn't really work out too well for Bleaker Bob's being in there, anyways. So uh, you know, it's it's. I guess it, it wasn't the type of thing that what that would happened to Bob. Well, he closed, I think he closed the New York store first and then he closed the L.A. store, but the L.A. store had moved too. It wasn't in that location the whole time that he was open. Mm. And um, by then, of course, I think the rents had really started to to drive a place like that out. You couldn't really have a used record store on Melrose anymore at that point. And it was before the resurgence of vinyl too. So it was really just CDs. But um, So by 1995... The um, you'd pretty much established not just the first wave of of lowbrow, but the first wave of pop surrealism, and that second wave of lowbrow, and so the people, the original artists like Joe Joe Coleman and, and um Robert Williams and Neon Park and and Hudson Marquez had kind of um that the wave of people that had seen their stuff had started making art. So people like Coop and Piz and a lot of the guys that we have up Alan actually right Forbes. now, Alan so, Forbes. Yeah the um the the real kind of rat fink inspired cats were all um kind of becoming well known with their own thing and they were they were networking and they were putting up shows at places like Zero One, which was down the street, and um in downtown and like little pop ups. And I think by ninety five Mary Karnowski had left um Tamra Bain Gallery to open up her own space. And I think it took her a couple of years, but um, you know, certainly she's had a big impact in working with the same types of, of artists that you've, you brought up the chain. Yeah. And um, by 95, when you moved off Melrose, um, it was sort of like, well, it was nothing when we got here, and there's not much where we're going, but we'll, we'll build it up again, and you decided to put everything under one roof. And was that a conscious decision to, to just make it all... Kind of melt together, or was it more of? Oh yeah, a...
1: that was that was. I mean, it was all one one piece. Yeah. Uh, I opened I opened Wacko because I inherited the name Soap Plant, mm-hmm. and uh, it didn't describe what it had evolved into. Right. So uh, so I uh, I had Wacko, and and it had to be in a separate store. It was kind of the novelty store when mm-hmm. it first. You know, toys, novelties, cards.
0: Yeah, the, an ocean uh, and, of postcards. Like people yeah. who, who haven't seen it, it had the most spinning racks of postcards you have ever seen in your life.
1: Uh, yeah, we had twenty thousand postcards or something yeah. different skews on that it was just unmanageable, and then uh, uh, I actually opened uh, Zulu uh, in the late eighties, nineties, mm-hmm. which was a clothing store. Because we did, we actually used to do a lot of clothing going back all the way to the Melrose I mean to the uh, sunset store mm-hmm. and uh, I mean we were the first people to s- sell black straight leg jeans and, in LA. We carried a lot of stuff from trash in vaudeville
0: yeah out of New York yeah
1: and um, when I moved back, uh, actually the impetus for moving back was the building department virtually closed down the gallery. I could only have 100 people in. I had to get a permit every every time every I had opening. an opening. It was, so that was like $200 for that and $200 to have a, a fire marshal on hand that I had to hire. <laughs> and it was it's just... The city of West Hollywood, happen. right? No, no. It, wasn't. it was L.A.? That's it's, it's L.A. Wow. And uh, um, so... I had to find a space for the gallery. I just said, I'm tired of Melrose. Yeah. Uh, you know, it had become commercialized. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a McDonald's. There was a Gap. There was a McDonald's. A, I don't think there was a Gap. There's a Benetton's, which didn't last that long, but, but there was, uh, um, a couple other stores that were very, very kind of commercial. and, yeah. and, and, uh, you know the crowd changed. Uh, the sales were completely different. Um, you know, and I would have, I would, I would sell on Saturday. I would sell like one and a half times what I did on a regular week, a weekday. But I would have ten times the amount of people in. So the wear and the tear, yeah, especially on the, books, right? And, and the and the theft and things like yeah. that was was not it and actually bleaker bob was the one that persuaded me to keep that open for uh another two years while i had that i had two of them opened at the same time right right and uh uh i don't know i probably should have just bamboozled just yeah but there was so much stuff
0: yeah, <laughs> when I Remember we were taking it apart, it the, the final day when we started taking apart some of the the constructions that were were built into the space and throwing them out into the street to like the cheering throngs of um, former and current employees. The um, the other kind of crazy thing about that in in that move and, and in that area and as the crowd was changing is that urban outfitters, there was some people that had come to kind of like offer like a free um, like business plan thing and they kind of came in and they looked at all the merchandise and they wanted to say, oh, you know, we'd like to take you national. Like there was, they wanted to franchise you at at a certain point.
1: Well, I don't know about that. There was somebody that came in that said, oh, you you do business all wrong. No, there was a point when uh, I was uh, invited to, Go to Universal City Walk to become the cornerstone of Universal City Walk as a I brand new thing, yeah, yeah. Stone and, um, uh, I told them what I wanted and they sort of agreed, but then, the, then they had this sliding scale on the lease mm-hmm. where I would be paying at the end of 10 years something like $20 a square foot or something just Absurd, incredible, yeah. So I'd be working for them and, uh, the other thing was I I didn't have a, a point of purchase computer system and I said I've got to get that in order yeah. first and, and and I still haven't got that in order <laughs>
0: with that many skews but the they kind of took a little bit of a, a version of the shop and sort of spread it out to Urban Outfitters at that point and so they were carrying some of the. The best-selling fashion oh, yeah. books and some of the products and and I mean Urban people
1: definitely came in and, and looked at it. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of people that come in and look at it, and and, and a lot of my uh, suppliers come in and look at the store to mm-hmm. find out. You know, I go to go to uh, trade shows and everybody going, Billy, Billy, what's next? What's next? Yeah. Go,
0: oh, yeah, they want to know what the next thing uh, is. I, I'm not telling you. Yeah. But you knew owls and you knew pandas before they did, you know, because you saw it was it was coming through and it kind of, you probably helped shape that in a really weird way because of the merchandise that you were offering.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I definitely, uh, I've started a number of trends um, and, uh, you know, now it's, it's kind of almost impossible to, to start any kind of trends because everybody does everything and there's yeah. uh, so much product and and uh, and you know I I'm, I'm willing to do stuff that's sacrilegious but it uh, seems like you know everybody'll do that nowadays but uh
0: <laughs> the originator yeah the original the original uh all purpose yeah, offender right. bush
1: bush was a decider i'm the, i'm the originator <laughs>
0: the originator so the um you know and you talk about a little bit of the trends and, and as we've seen things come and go but i think that um you did prove to the art establishment that illustrated work figurative narrative work not only had a home, but that it was a good business to be in, and it kind of took them a long time to catch up to it, but at this point, you know, obviously, I think the people that are listening to the show are probably very familiar with things like Juxtapose Magazine, and the first five years of that magazine, 90% of what they were covering was La Luz de Jesus stuff, and with the other 10% being maybe a show at Psychedelic Solutions in New York, a show at Zero One Gallery down the street, but the majority of it were artists that you showed, and they would ask who are you going to show to figure out who they were going to program into the magazine until it kind of became that they had a little bit of a change of direction. And then there were a few other galleries out there. I think five years in Jonathan Levine opens up his space in New York. No, no, no. 10 years in
1: Jonathan. Yeah. No, Jonathan Levine, about 10 years in opened his space in Pennsylvania. Right. He, he worked in, he did some stuff at CBGB's and mm. stuff. Um, but, you know yeah there was there was literally nothing the first 10 years there was no competition but there weren't that many artists right i mean it, you know there was there was an explosion in the basically mid 90s to 2000 with a proliferation of of artists and other galleries and then after 2000 and the internet of course the internet it changed mm-hmm. the game changed everybody's game on everything mm-hmm. but uh, you know especially in the lowbrow pop surrealism yeah. it just uh, disseminated it to, to the far reaches and uh, it's a much more populist art yeah and that's that made it expand exponentially faster than anything else people can relate to it, you know, it's it's telling a story, you know. It's it's not. You don't have to have an art degree to just to read the uh,
0: the CV in the, the wall, the, the yeah. Little
1: label on the wall, yeah. kind of thing, yeah. You know, because you know, can I just say this?
0: <laughs> uh, the art world's bullshit. Yeah, um, it's a common theme on this show. But, uh, yeah, but oh, even okay. so, like at the um, on just, Melrose it, at the shop in in the bookstore in in Soap Plant that you were selling more Tashin books at that single location than maybe the aggregate of every other place that was carrying Tashin books at that point. Yeah,
1: well, you know, one thing that a major thing that I did uh, pioneer in the gift world was selling books. And uh, one of the things I did was I was the only one in L.A. who would sell a lot of Tashin's books because when he first started... Benedict, Benedict. uh, he was doing reprints, but when he really started publishing his own material, 30, 40, 50 percent of it was sexually oriented. Yeah. So besides me and Circus of Books, I was the only one really selling it. Right. I mean, you know, book soup. Sold it, but they—I don't think they were carrying it. They weren't I, doing the numbers. I, I carried everything, you know. That was carried, what they what you used to call the rain. I carried the sick stuff, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, they were carrying—they were catering to like the the raincoat crowd, you know. It's like somebody might walk in to buy. You're talking about Book Soup or Circus of Books. Circus of Books.
1: Circus of Books. Yeah, but uh, you know, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't in the majors, right? You know, Barnes and Noble or whoever those guys were. I don't At know the time, if, they, yeah. if there's anybody around anymore. But, uh, yeah. um, you know, and, and that was also what I was selling were visually oriented books.
0: Yeah. yeah. The first time I ever saw the the work of, um, well, golly, I mean, anybody from Jeff Koons on down. I mean, you sold the the Jeff Koons books like crazy. And I think, you know, if, if you weren't in New York, he wasn't really showing any place else. So the only place you could see were in these books that were getting published and the um like the exaltation show, the kind of famous show of of these large pornographic um photographs that um took up like like mural size and um and there was that. I mean the Madonna book, the sex book, you sold like five hundred of those or something crazy.
1: No, I only sold about ten because it it sold out so fast. I didn't order enough. And I ordered like you know, I, I ordered pretty heavy but I didn't you know uh, I've got one of those.
0: Yeah. yeah still uh, sealed? Probably. Yeah. Uh, I still haven't looked at it. No. Uh, <laughs> but I remember that yeah. was that kind of news crews were coming and filming the corner of the lines around the corner for people who wanted that book. I remember that happening. And, and I think the show upstairs was like a Joe Coleman and Suzanne Williams show or something. So it was like a really interesting mix of things happening just in the businesses you, that you, you owned.
1: You, you, you see, you see, the thing is you didn't do drugs. You remember this stuff. <laughs> I, I I, uh, Clean I, living. I, 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 I don't remember that. I, I remember, uh, you know, uh, Kind of affecting pop culture, we had this one Taschen book. Uh, I think it was called Heads, mm-hmm. and this is when he first started. It was a reprint of a book, and it and we had we had to get it shipped directly from Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how he was working back then. But it was all uh, heads of New Guinea, Papua New Guinea uh, tribal tribesmen, and. um are these David, shrunken heads are they like no, the no, living no. heads? They, they, they're heads, but if you, if you ever see their makeup and yeah. their feathers and the bones right, of their nose. Right,
0: right. I remember that book.
1: David Lee Roth came in and bought one of those books. Yeah. You remember his first solo album cover? Yeah,
0: that's right. And he copied it for Crazy from the Heat. Yeah. That's right. Wow. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, that was the kind of... The, the kind of influence, and then you know, like the, the Red Chili Peppers. That, that's where Guns N' Roses.
0: From. Yep, those guys found, were hanging out.
1: Found the cover for Appetite for because they saw Robert's show.
0: Yep, and uh, the Robert Williams show, and that became the album cover. Before that got banned, and they went to the tattoo design that um, Mark. Um, Mahoney did, I think, and who was probably – they also probably – I mean, they knew him on the Sunset Strip, but he was hanging out all the time then too. And then you had the Red Hot Chili Peppers were there, and um, Anthony Kiedis was buying stuff. Um,
1: Yeah, but not from me.
0: uh, He he bought at least one piece from the show, I think, because I think I remember seeing his name in one of the receipt books, but he did buy a lot of stuff direct. Yeah. And then there were – I mean, there was just a, so many people. I mean, a lot of these guys that were in the rock bands that were playing the Sunset Strip, and you'd think of them as being really successful, and they'd come in and pass in an application. I remember one of the guys from R.A.T. passed in an application. <laughs> we are like, there's no way we're hiring that guy. Why? Well, you know,
1: metal, we, we, we missed that. At, I uh, know,
0: they, Melrose, sort uh, of. Yeah. But then, you know, you had Scott Wieland, who was employed there, and I worked with Scott. Um, you know, you had um, certainly Christian, who's now... Um, you know, editing and producing films uh his band at the time the brats and scarling I mean, there were a lot of like locally popular people you mentioned you know that robert from the motels um was working for you but there was also you know the drummer from the plimsolls and you had um you know guys that had been in um oh what do you call it not the boys but um like I, I seminal mean, la well, bands the, well they
1: were you know, i mean uh they were, and The zeros and, and
0: Robert Elvez Lopez, and yeah, there was just a ton. Lisa and, Marie and, and
1: and Robert, you know, uh, you have to give a shout out because he was very influential in the gallery mm-hmm. in the beginning. I mean, he he brought me this article on on Joe Coleman, mm-hmm. and I said. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah, uh, We're and, talking about Robert
0: Lopez who performs as the uh, as Elvez, the Mexican Elvis. God. This super great guy. Um just a very happy and part he, of that. And he lineage. was
1: very, you know, he was very into uh performance kind of stuff in the early shows. You know, he did did a lot of uh, you know, organized a lot of things like having people get married and foxy boxing and and elvez elvez's first performance was at a gallery opening it was all you know it was it was a very uh, uh, performance-based type thing and uh, one of his
0: protégés was actually performing here at meltdown we were recording one night and it was um puddles pity party so the the guy that is this seven foot tall clown who's this sad clown who has this amazing voice was performing downstairs, I think, when we were recording um, upstairs one of the uh, the Jeff Paris interview. so it, it was weird to kind of like this guy that used to travel with Elvez on tour now has his own thing and is part of the comedy Melt thing, and, which is huge here but um, I mean, there's. we could probably go on and on. I mean, we could probably do five hours on, on just the, the artists and the influence in the gallery. But um, certainly some of the bigger names, you know, uh, Manuel Ocampo, uh, Liz McGrath, the Clayton brothers, um, people who know of the, the kind of kissing Disney princess stuff, um, Jose Rodolfo Loaiza on um, And it's, it's still happening. You know, uh, Kozik. Um, Tara man, McPherson man, man Woman Man Woman yeah I mean like oh, all these people who
1: I got, I got names I can't remember any of
0: them Yeah, Alex DeLeon you know uh, who passed away recently who's just a phenomenal um, pop artist with a southwestern feel and, um, and we still show some of the people that you showed in those first couple of years. I mean, certainly you've got Hudson Marquez is showing again Mm. in February this coming year. And, and people like Daniel Martin Diaz will be showing in that show. Um, is someone who you've been showing since very early in his career and who's had a, a big influence in the Tucson, um, art scene. And with people, Wanting to borrow pieces from your collection constantly, we're we're always packaging things up and sending them to shows. The show at the um, Virginia Mocha, uh, which ran into some controversy uh, with um, some of the um, more right-wing conservative um, factions that boycott art shows. But, um, you know, there's no denying the influence um, that Billy Shire has had on Los Angeles and on the art scene and then the great art scene of the world. If you look at who Gagosian is showing and if you look at people like Odd Nerdrum, but really John Curran, that really comes out of this love of kitsch and this love of the kind of pop surrealist rather than the actual pure surrealist. I
1: I wish I could take credit for John Curran. He's a a brilliant painter. But, uh, um well, you know, uh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, it was it was all my fault, and and I apologize. <laughs> I actually have to apologize for for big eyed girls. I you know I feel like that's kind of uh, you know partially my doing, but uh, I I hate big eyed
0: girls. The big eye art, yeah. <laughs> big eye art. And well, the, the, there was a a keen tribute show that you did one year, right? And and Vicky Burnt had certainly been putting pieces in some of the shows. I don't know if
1: I did keen tribute because i uh no i never did a keen tribute that would that was something that was the drugs no uh, (laughs) um no because uh you know i did a a a few things um you know like uh von dutch Mm -hmm. tribute show uh but and i did that got in in uh connection with uh, Copro, yeah um, you know back in the day before they had a space Doug Nason my, yeah my, uh, my competition
0: yeah and then they were in 10 years into the gallery so in 1996 was the track 16 Let Luz de Jesus tribute show which was it 96 yeah it was the 10th year anniversary and that so they had pieces from Robert Williams and I think, he, I think Todd Shore was in that show even though he hadn't shown with us
1: I don't know. Eric White, yeah, was the was the the piece he bought that some that sold and and then of course Eric showed with track sixteen yeah. on the next show. Yeah. I, I didn't appreciate it. Was it was like oh well you, you paid me tribute and then you <laughs> and
0: then you took my artist and then you uh, I can't say it on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well we, we we love Eric and Eric was back in for a book signing. He looks fantastic and um and he's still he's doing well and I think. I can't I can't think of anybody um, who's been through that kind of, the you know, the, the University of La Luz de Jesus, I guess you can call it, you know, where it's having shown there and developed a career who doesn't now pay it back in some form. Like, they, they'll all put it on their resume. They all talk about it. In fact, everybody I've talked about has said just great things about the gallery and, and the respect that they have for you. And, um, you know, it's. I think it's... It's starting to reach that point, and with museums now requesting your leather work and, and your denim work, that it's, it's hit that point where I think people open up the books, and they look back, and they say, you know what, it's time to give this guy his due. It's time to—we sh- we should have paid attention. We were, and now we have to really give it up. And I think—I I hope that's going to happen for Hudson Marquez pretty soon, too, because the influence that that guy's had on, on just—on really big concept art's incredible.
1: Well, he's, he did the this seminal American 20th century art and... Um, Outdoor uh, installation. Installation piece, which uh, is also known as Cadillac Ranch. Outside of Arlington, Texas. Yeah. Which,
0: and featured in the Bruce Springsteen album cover, which he sued him for, I think.
1: Well, if they don't ask... <laughs> I know. they sue him for it, was great. it. He knew about it. Was, it. It, was, it, was intru- it was featured on, on a Lincoln continental commercial too because <laughs> it was all Cadillacs. So. right 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 but uh you know I mean it's it it says it all uh you know he had his work with the ant farm who were you know the premier conceptual artists of, of what I feel the 20th century and I'm not really big on conceptual arts but you know they did they did several things that you know you don't you don't really have to do any any conceptual art ever again.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Well, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there, and I want to thank Billy Shire for coming on the show, and you know just thank him in general because he's been such a huge influence on me in my life. Oh, and
1: we didn't mention Gary Pander. Should we? Yeah, Gary Pander, brilliant artist who has not got his actually due. has not gotten
0: his due. That's yeah. true, and actually it, it it really bothered me when they did the. Um, the Pee Wee Herman issue with Juxtapose and he wasn't on the cover. They kind of gave a lot of credit to a different, like a person who was more of a set decorator than a set designer on the Pee Wee Herman show. And I mean, obviously that whole show is directly out of Gary Paner's art.
1: Yeah. Uh, was that Wayne White?
0: It, yeah, they did a big write-up on Wayne and it's kind of like, that's a little bit of revisionism history. Oh, yeah. Nothing against Wayne. I love his, his his text paintings. I think they're a great slice of modern Americana. But it ain't Gary Panther, and the Pee Wee Herman show was Gary Panther.
1: Yeah. yeah, he shouldn't take credit. Yeah. You heard that from me.
0: <laughs> well, we'll leave Wayne. off there. <laughs> so I thank Billy Shire, and um, again, this is Matt Kennedy. You've been listening to Pod Sequentialism. And, um, you know, like we do, we talk about uh, the things that affect pop culture and art, and I think that this is one of the more important things because La Luz de Gallery, as envisioned by uh, Billy Shire, Has become really the symbol of the types of art that weren't being seen as art, and and move forward and became that. And um, we'll uh, we'll talk to you again about this and other things soon. Bye bye. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism, and um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Zeus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it's pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out, and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.